Well, thank you, Ian, and welcome to everybody. I've spent most of my career in government research positions where it was very important to provide sound scientific information in a non-advocacy way for decision makers to make, hopefully, some informed decisions. And it's in that vein that I would like to discuss the factors that would control the energy mix um, for the world over the coming um, decades throughout the rest of this century. Now, predicting the future is a tricky business. And what I would like to do today is to discuss some trends and some scientific constraints so that maybe you can then develop your own scenarios for the future energy mix. Perhaps uh, start with a simple definition of energy because the word energy is used in different ways by different people. It has a specific meaning in physics, a specific meaning in the medical profession. But today, we're talking about usable power and specifically the resources for producing usable power. Now, there's a, a lot of misinformation about energy resources, no matter whether those energy resources are uh, non-renewable or renewable. Uh, this is... Uh, one thing that I picked up from the web just about four weeks ago, Fox News claiming that solar won't work in America because it's not sunny like Germany. Uh, well, hopefully you see the, the funny side of that, but unfortunately uh, there's a significant part of the population that um, may not understand uh, the amusing side of that. If you don't understand the amusing side, I'll just point out that uh, where I lived in the United States in Colorado has about twice as many sunshine hours per year as Frankfurt, Germany, uh, which is one of the sunnier parts of uh, Germany. And when it comes to uh, energy, of course, everyone thinks that they are, they are an expert. And uh, people tend to have some fairly strong opinions and uh, Usually when I give these types of talks, uh, there's a significant part of the audience that uh, gets a little annoyed with me. And, uh, um, so I uh, hope you won't start throwing any tomatoes uh, during the talk. When we think about the future of energy, we tend to think of an evolution from the world of our own experience. But it is worth remembering that about 20% of the world today is still without electricity. And 37% still has no access to modern fuels. Think about that, 20% without electricity, 37% of the world without access to modern fuels. Um, those people are using firewood, they're using dried dung, etc. Most people in the world aspire to use energy in the same way as you or I do. And they aspire to use as much energy as you or I. 
This plot is rather a fuzzy plot, but it shows all the countries of the world with the size of the circles proportional to the size of the population. The vertical axis is the life expectancy, and the horizontal scale is the GDP per capita, which is on a logarithmic scale. So that's the, a measure of the wealth of the countries. Australia, if you can't see it, is that little pink dot between Japan and the United States up in the top right-hand corner. Now, the vast majority of the world's population then aspires, understandably, to move to the upper right-hand side of this figure, to be richer, to live longer, and, incidentally, to use much more energy. The second factor that we should think about when we think about the uh, growth in demand for energy this century is population growth. This plot shows the spread of uncertainty in predicting the size of the world's population throughout the century, perhaps peaking in as short as the next 25 years, but possibly increasing uh, until well after the end of the century. But even if the population were to decrease, energy demand will likely increase as the world population strives for a better standard of living. Consumption of energy has risen dramatically since the middle of the last century. Population increase has been a significant reason for that growth, but global energy cons in global energy consumption, but it is not the main driver. Consumption has risen at more than twice the rate of population growth. People across the world are moving out of poverty and becoming more affluent and therefore demand more energy. So what about future energy consumption? You see four uh, curves there to 2035. Those are projections based on scenarios developed by the International Energy Agency and the Energy Information, Energy Information Administration of the United States government. And the red line is one that I've constructed myself, just assuming a continued uh, rate of increase in energy consumption similar to the rate of the last 40 years, which has been relatively constant. These projections suggest that we will be consuming twice as much energy by 2050, or shortly thereafter, than the world consumes at present. So where will that energy come from? The first years of this century have seen a rapid growth in renewable energy. Uh, Think back 10 years ago, if you told a friend that you'd seen a wind farm, they'd say, oh, wow, tell me about it. If you told somebody today that you'd seen a, a wind farm, they'd sort of roll their eyes. They're, they're becoming commonplace around the world. And you see that dramatic increase in wind energy. Likewise with solar. This building is powered by solar energy. Look on top of the building and you'll see the large solar panels. And you can see the dramatic growth in solar power in the, particularly in the last five years. 
And our own uh, Professor James Dale, there's a reason he's got a big grin on his face there, there's been a six-fold increase in biofuels production this century so far. So the future for renewables is looking very rosy. But I think it's important to think about renewables within the entire energy mix. Most of the tremendous increase in energy production since the Second World War has been from fossil fuels, from oil, from gas, and from coal. Although the amount of energy from renewable sources has increased substantially over the time, the percentage of the total production has only changed a little. Approximately 1.6% of the global energy supply comes from renewables, which incidentally is approximately the same percentage as the year that I was born. And uh, if you're wondering which year I was born, I'll just say it was toward the left-hand side of that figure. So the last 20 years have seen dramatic improvements in renewable energy technologies and related drops in production costs. And no doubt, modern renewable energy technologies will provide much more energy for the world in the future. However, although renewables have locally displaced some fossil fuel consumption, their growth has not resulted in a decline in fossil fuel production. Rather, it has simply added to the total amount of energy available in the world. As we have seen, there's a huge potential demand for affordable energy in the world, and so lowering the cost of renewables will not of itself cause a decline in fossil energy production. So there is some very exciting things that are happening in the world of renewables, but it's not taken away from the market share of um, fossil energy. Nuclear energy production started about 1970 and today makes up about 5% of our total energy supply. Again, it has locally displaced some fossil fuel consumption, but the growth in nuclear did not result in any decline in fossil energy production. And it's interesting to note that even though nuclear production has increased this century, the percentage of our energy that we get from nuclear has actually decreased. So that in the year 2000, it was 6.5%, and today it's 5.3%. I'm told, I'm not an expert in that area, but I'm told that nuclear plants are increasingly safe, but they obviously suffer from a public perception. And if there's going to be a Three Mile Island or Chernobyl or a Fukushima every 10 to 20 years, that uh, public perception is likely to persist and hopefully things will turn around in the future. So let's move now to fossil energy, oil, gas and coal. They currently make up 86.5% of the world's energy mix. And that percentage has remained essentially constant for the last 30 years 
perhaps 1% lower, 1% higher, but essentially constant. And I think it's important to realize that contrary to conventional wisdom, there is a very large amount of fossil fuels left in the ground. And that the world's growing demand for energy means that fossil fuels will likely be an important, important part of our energy mix for much of this century and particularly for the next 50 years. Now, all energy sources create environmental problems. And let's face it, there are significant environmental problems associated with fossil fuels. We're all familiar with pictures of oil spills, with uh, oil rig disasters, with uh, stranded tankers, and air pollution. This is a satellite view of smog over China largely created by the burning of coal. The outer edge, incidentally, of the Chinese smog can reach as far away as Colorado in the United States, where I used to live. There was some, when I lived there, occasionally there'd be a hazy day and they'd say, oh, this is smog coming in from China. Now, I grew up in a heavily polluted part of the United Kingdom, and x-rays of my lungs show that uh, that had an effect. And so this has some uh, personal uh, reasons for me, thinking that we really need to be uh, clearing up uh, these pollution problems. Smog is a serious problem in many parts of the world, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, smog can be cleared up by rigorous controls on emissions. But greenhouse gas emissions are so far much harder to control, at least in an economically feasible fashion. The consensus of the vast majority of the scientific community is that anthropogenic emissions of greenhouse gases is a significant contributing factor to climate change. This change has been nowhere more dramatic than in the Arctic. This is a NASA image that shows the extent of snow and ice at the end of an Arctic winter. I lived in Canada for seven years at the southern end of this deep freeze. I remember one winter in Alberta where it never got above freezing for five months of the year. You can see why I moved to Brisbane. Uh, but this, uh, this snow and ice, uh, much of it melts during the summer. And this image shows the extent of uh, snow and ice at the end of the last Arctic summer. The yellow line shows the average minimum extent of the Arctic ice cap over the last 30 years. And in the last 10 years, it has cons consistently melted back to a progressively smaller area. Furthermore, the ice that's left is only half as thick as it was 30 years ago. So essentially, three quarters of the summer ice has disappeared in the last 30 years. It's a remarkable change. And this century, we will need to adapt to climate change, to a changing world, and to mitigate the effects of climate change. Now, we, we regularly read that peak oil, peak gas, and peak coal are imminent. 
that the imminent demise of fossil fuels had been predicted for over 100 years. And yet production continues to increase. So why have these predictions proven to be wrong? And should we believe current predictions of an impending shortage of fossil fuels? We often read that the easy-to-find oil accumulations have all been found, and that only the difficult accumulations uh, remain. Well, whenever I read that, which I read almost every month in one newspaper or journal, I'm always reminded by a quote by that famous American baseball player and amateur philosopher Yogi Berra. It's a case of deja vu all over again, and you can see a quote by Michael Halbuti, a famous um, American petroleum uh, explorer uh, back uh, 30 years ago. Most of the easy-to-find accumulations of petroleum worldwide have been found. Another quote by M. King Hubbard uh, back 75 years ago. While we do not know exactly how much oil remains undiscovered, the easy discoveries have already been made and only the difficult ones remain. It does beg the question as to why anyone would think that we would discover all the hard to find oil first. But uh, these statements were true when they were made, they're true today, and they'll be true in another 50 years or so. This plot shows uh, the production of oil in the UK sector of the North Sea, and each of the colours uh, represents uh, the production from an individual oil field. That are some 236 oil fields in the North Sea. As in other regions of the world, the largest fields, the easy to find fields, were developed first with one or two exceptions. Production from a field, as you can see from the Fortis field down at the bottom in yellow, usually rises for the first two or three years and then declines as the oil is gradually pumped out of the ground. Interestingly, you can see that the decline in many of the fields is halted at some point as new production technologies are applied to the old fields. Now, although the overall trend for North Sea production is clearly downward and appears to be in terminal decline, it's worth remembering that the Fortis field and North Sea oil production was forecast to end by the year 2000, and that just last year uh, it was predicted that the Fortis field and the North Sea would continue production for at least another 20 years. Now, as a geologist, when I think about oil resources or any other fossil fuel resource, I like to think of a pyramid. There's a small amount of resource at the top of the pyramid that has a high quality and a low cost of extraction. And there's a much larger volume lower in the pyramid that is of lower quality resource with a higher cost of extraction. The other part of the pyramid is well understood. We can see it clearly. But as we move down the pyramid, the size of the resource and the nature of the resource becomes less clear and it's unclear exactly how large it is. Now, when people calculate a resource or reserve, they essentially identify that part of the pyramid that is currently economic. So they 
put a slice through that pyramid. But over time, technology allows us to move further down the pyramid as those new technologies allow us to access harder to find resources and lower the costs of production. So that over time, the amount of that pyramid that's available to access economically increases. Of course, at the same time, we're also extracting resources from the upper part of the pyramid. So this, the question that we might ask ourselves is how low in that pyramid might we go this century? Predictions of peak oil and peak gas and coal rely on a methodology developed by King Hubbard back in 1956. Now, King Hubbard wasn't some obscure monarch from Eastern Europe. Uh, there's some Americans with uh, sort of interesting first names, and uh, King Hubbard was from Texas. He was a Texas farm boy. He was. He, grew up on a farm, but he came, became a very famous American geophysicist and geologist. And his methodology is based on the assumption that if we know the amount of resource, then we can predict the rest, uh, and we know part of the production curve, then we can predict the remainder of the production curve in the future. The area under the curve being equal to the amount of resource. But think back to that pyramid. The problem with this methodology is that we don't know the amount of resource that's going to be available in the future. I gave a talk similar to this some 15 years ago in Utah to a large audience at the American Association of Petroleum Geologists Conference. And uh, when I went down the next morning, uh, for breakfast, and I looked at the paper, I suddenly found that I'd made not only the paper, but also the headline of the paper. Uh, it exaggerated a little bit what I'd said, but uh, basically, uh, if you think back to 1998, uh, there was predictions at that time that oil would peak by the year 2000, and uh, clearly, I was giving that this message about the pyramid and the problems with that peak oil there. So be careful what you say. I'll be uh, looking at the press tomorrow and hopefully uh, won't see anything like that. So predictions of peak oil uh, uh, historically turned out not to, be, uh, to come true. Technological advances over the last 20 years have allowed economic extraction significantly lower in the pyramid. Think about some of the improvements that have been made in technology. Our geologic models are much better than they were. Seismic imaging, we can image the subsurface in much more high definition. New drilling technologies, horizontal drilling, directional drilling, lower cost drilling in deep areas. New production technologies, such as much better hydraulic fracturing, transportation technologies. All of these mean that uh, there's been an increased recovery of oil and gas from all oil and gas fields. We've been able to go into much deeper water, 
to look after, look for oil and gas, looking for oil and gas in areas below thick salt accumulations that previously we were not able to image on seismic. And we now are looking at oil and gas from unconventional sources. So as a result of these technological changes, the world has more, has a, more than twice as much oil reserves today as 30 years ago, despite the huge volume of oil that has been produced over that time. Oil reserves, that's the oil that's been discovered and that we believe is economic to produce at today's prices. Just to look at that figure and put it in context, annual production is about 86 billion barrels per year. Likewise, natural gas reserves have more than doubled in the last 30 years and have increased every year because of new technological developments and as we go lower in the pyramid. Last year, I published uh, a paper in which I made an assessment of the amount of remaining uh, oil in the world, and the coloured segments of that column uh, are conventional oil. Proved reserves, that's the oil that's been found. Undiscovered fields, those are the fields where there's good geological evidence that we will find oil in various parts of the world. And then reserve growth, is a prediction of how much extra oil we might get out of existing fields. But over and above that is the un unconventional oil that we may be able to develop and which there is no accurate measure at the moment. Just this last week, uh, to give you an idea of unconventional resources and their potential size, uh, there was an assessment uh, published by the US Geological Survey of the oil shales in Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming. And it's a nice example of the pyramid. If you think about the high-grade uh, oil shale with the high volumes of gallons per tonne, relatively small amounts of oil. But if you think about the lower grades, much larger volumes. And none of this is currently economic, but there's plenty of people trying to look at new technologies to develop the oil shales in that area. And to think about well, what does four trillion barrels mean? Four trillion barrels is equivalent to all the oil that has been used to date and all the oil, conventional oil that is uh, in the ground at the moment. So there is, this is just one example of unconventional um, oil that may be part of our future. Likewise, there's a a uh, tremendous amount of uh, natural gas, uh, again, the, here are the numbers that I published last year, and both for the conventional oil and for the conventional gas, there's about 80 years supply at current production rates. And then on top of that, we have all the unconventional oil and gas. It's perhaps worth seeing where our fossil fuels come from and perhaps put Australia's production in some perspective. This plot shows crude oil production since 1990 and it shows the top 10 producers. Interestingly, 
only four of those top ten producers are actually OPEC countries. Many countries are planning to increase their oil production. The United States, in particular, Canada and Brazil all plan to increase their production. And Iraq, uh, they're increasing their production. They have the capacity to exceed Saudi Arabia's production. And if you've been reading the newspaper this last few days, Venezuela could quite easily re-enter the ranks of one of the top ten producers in the world. Where does Australia rank? We rank currently at 28th largest producer. But if BP finds oil in the Great Australian Bight, we might well move up the ranks of oil producers. Uh, and there also is the potential for unconventional oil in Australia. Here's a plot of natural gas production since 1990, rising up every year except uh, during the uh, financial crisis back in 2008-9. Australia is a, has a large amount of natural gas, uh, but we are at the moment just the 16th largest producer. There's obviously plans to significantly increase our production, and uh, the hope is that we will um, essentially uh, increase our production to the level that you see Qatar at, and that we will be exporting a large amount of that uh, gas to Asia. That uh, increase in production, a large part of that is going to come from Queensland and the other large part from the Northwest Shelf. But the most remarkable story in energy production so far this century is the dramatic growth in coal production. Most people consider coal as a fuel of the past. But when you look at this plot, clearly this is the golden age of coal. Dramatic increase since the year 2000. A little over 70% of that increase has come from China. And it's worth considering when you look at that figure that every two years, China has increased its coal production by an amount equivalent to Australia's coal production, annual coal production. There's a lot more coal left in the world. So when we're thinking about global CO2 emissions, trends like this are something to be concerned about. Australia currently is the fifth largest producer of coal in the world, uh, and until very, very recently, we were the largest coal exporter in the world. I've mentioned unconventional resources, and uh, some of you might be asking, what, what are unconventional resources? There's three aspects to them. The oil and gas of unconventional resources does not flow easily towards a well when you drill it. It requires some form of stimulation for production. Second aspect is that unconventional resources do not occur in a conventional reservoir. Conventional reservoir is a highly permeable rock capped by an impermeable seal which stops the buoyant oil and gas migrating upwards. The third aspect is that unconventional resources occur over wide geographic areas rather than being in discrete oil or gas fields. Examples of unconventional resources, coal seam gas, or coal bed methane as it's known outside of Australia, 
tight gas, shale gas, shale oil, oil shale, which is not really an oil, it's a carrageen that needs to be heated up to produce oil. Oil sands, which is a degraded, uh, where the oil is a degraded type of oil. And then hydrates, where uh, hydrates uh, are essentially uh, methane that's trapped in a water, crystalline water structure. Uh, it looks like ice, but uh, you can actually light it. And here you see an example of uh, hydrates uh, burning. Very common uh, on the continental shelves around the world. Unconventional resources are not new. Uh, they've been exploited on a small scale for many years. But there's been this dramatic upturn in uh, unconventional resource development in the last uh, few years. The biggest interest worldwide today is in shales. We've known for a long time that some shales have a lot of oil and gas in them. And indeed, most of the conventional oil and gas has been derived from shales that, uh, where the gas has migrated to more porous strata. It's been very difficult to think of extracting uh, that oil and gas out of those shales until recently. Big uh, shale gas development has been in the United States. I left the United States uh, six years ago, and this was the state of the state uh, in terms of gas production at that time. You can see that up to uh, about 2007, which is when this publication came out, uh, conventional gas was in decline in North America. There was significant growth over the period of previous 15 years in unconventional gas, in, especially in coal seam gas and in tight gas. And there was just a little bit of shale gas development, as you see in that light blue uh, area. There was a lot of gas that was being imported to the United States, mainly from uh, Canada, but Canada was cutting back. Uh, they needed their gas supplies, and their conventional gas was also being depleted. And so it was seen that the United States would have to import uh, by LNG uh, significant amounts of uh, natural gas. And there was, uh, they were building uh, LNG downloading facilities at various places around the United States. And this was the prediction uh, for the future. Uh, the unconventionals uh, weren't split up into uh, any uh, discrete areas, but most of it was thought most of the future unconventionals would be tight gas and coal seam gas. Well, this is the scenario uh, or the situation today. See the tremendous growth in shale gas in the last five or six years, and the projected increase, given what's now known about the shale gas resources of the United States. There's a decreasing demand for importing gas, and by, uh, within 10 years, it's thought the United States will become a net exporter of uh, natural gas. We'll be probably exporting some LNG uh, before the end of this decade. So a tremendous turnaround. This is a real revolution because of this shale gas. Look at the amount of uh, 
unconventional gas uh, from all three sources. It's not just gas. When I left the United States six years ago, if you'd asked about how important is North Dakota as an oil producer, everyone said, oh, does it produce any oil? You know, but it was well, well down in terms of oil producing. Now the big interest is in North Dakota producing oil from the Barkham Shale. Grown tremendously in the last few years, and just to put that in growth in context, that uh, is the level of Australia's oil production. Oil production in the United States peaked in 1975 and appeared to be on a terminal decline. But in the last three years, it's, there's been an upturn, and current predictions are for a very substantial increase in US oil production, to the point where people are now talking about uh, the United States becoming energy independent for oil, gas, as well as its coal resources. There's a similar story in uh, Canada. Canada is the sixth largest producer of oil in the world, and well over half of that oil comes from unconventional sources. Here, of course, what's happening is that that unconventional revolution, energy revolution, is now going global, and no more, more so than here in Queensland with the rapid growth of the coal seam gas industry and the very active exploration for shale gas around Australia. Now, even though unconventional resources have made a big breakthrough from an economic standpoint, it's worth noting that there is a, still a lot of opportunity to low, lower costs for unconventional resources, to make them even more competitive with other energy sources. This plot shows the probability curve for the ultimate, pro ultimate production from wells in 22 shale plays in the United States. There is a huge spread in the estimated ultimate re recovery, at least an order of magnitude between the top 10% of wells for one play and the bottom 10% of wells from that play. The black diamonds are the mean production for each play, which tends to be what's reported, but we have to think that it is a distribution. And a significant number of those wells, arguably over 50% for each play, is not profitable. So if we could eliminate production from the low producers, that would lower the cost of producing energy from these resources. The same is true for tight gas and for coal seam gas. There was a recent study that suggested that 50% of the wells that had been drilled in the Powder River Basin were, were uneconomic. And just to let you know about the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, one of the largest coal seam gas plays in the world, been over 26,000 wells drilled in that area. And yet, uh, when they drill a well, there's a, they can't really predict what the production will be within an order of magnitude variation. <laughs> to produce coal seam gas, it's necessary to depressure the coal by extracting the water from a coal bed. That allows the methane to flow from the, from the matrix, from the coal matrix to the well. Consequently, coal seam gas wells 
produce a considerable amount of water in their early stage of development before large amounts of gas can be produced. And it is difficult to initially estimate the ultimate productivity of a well. And it may be a year or more before we can estimate how much gas we can get out of a well. During that time, a substantial amount of water is extracted and that water needs to be processed at the surface for safe disposal. So identifying these low producing wells um, could save not only costs, but also the amount of water that is produced in coal seam gas development. The question is, can we increase the success ratio for wells drilled in unconventional resources? This plot shows that we've done that over time for all oil and gas. This is for the United States. It shows the success ratio of uh, drilling in the United States. Discovery wells are those that discovered economic oil or gas. The red wells are the dry holes that were unprofitable. Fifty years ago, uh, only 20% of the wells that were drilled were economic. Today, it's about 66%. That's what new technologies, that's what research does in terms of uh, lowering costs over time. The need to keep costs down is perhaps particularly true for Australia. We are planning on exporting from this country large volumes of LNG both from the conventional sources on the Northwest Shelf and the unconventional resources, particularly from here in Queensland. But there is competition for the marketplace. There are other areas that are trying to get gas or are getting gas to East Asia. There's Southeast Asia, there's the Middle East, there's new resources found uh, offshore East Africa, plans for sending that LNG to East Asia. There's that excess production from the United States plans to export that uh, to East Asia. Listen to Putin, he would like to export the large volumes of gas uh, from Siberia to uh, East Asia. Uh, that can be done by pipeline rather than by LNG. And then, if you talk to the Chinese, they're hoping to develop their own unconventional resources. So if we are really going to maintain and build our LNG exports over time, we need to make sure that we stay a low-cost provider. So, what about the future? How important will renewables and fossil fuels be? Last year saw the publication of the Global Energy Assessment this was an international effort to suggest ways to limit greenhouse gas emissions from energy use in order to contain the global mean temperature increase to less than 2 degrees Celsius this century. They developed three scenarios. One of those scenarios had the total energy supplied in 2050 similar to what we saw in predictions early in the talk. This increase is mainly met by a tripling of nuclear power and a dramatic increase in renewables, wind, solar, etc. Although coal and oil decrease in that scenario, gas increases and overall 
there is actually an increase in fossil energy production. In the most radical scenario of the global energy assessment, the growth of energy consumption is much slower as demand is tempered by efficient use of energy. Again, there is a dramatic increase in renewables and nuclear, but even in that scenario, there is only a 25% reduction in fossil fuel production by 2050. The problem with that efficiency scenario is that most of the anticipated growth will come from developing countries and emerging economies have historically used energy very inefficiently. Let's take a quick look at Australia now. This is our current energy consumption according to the Bureau of Resources and Energy Economics. As you can see, the vast majority of our consumption currently comes from fossil fuels. The Bureau forecasts a modest 21% increase in Australia's energy consumption by 2050, but, but with quite a different mix than at present. A dramatic decrease in coal consumption and a substantial increase in consumption of renewable energy. But Bree also forecasts Australia's coal production in 2050 will be 45% higher than it is today, with a substantial increase in coal exports. As I said earlier, the availability of new energy sources does not necessarily cut into the demand for older energy sources. We live in a world that is vastly undersupplied with readily available energy for cooking, heating, cooling and industrial development. So what of a future with not only abundant renewable energy but also abundant fossil fuel resources? Think for a moment about a future with abundant fossil fuels. There are both positive and negative points. On the positive side, much of the world could see a higher standard of living with increased life expectancy an increase in basic necessities such as clean water, adequate food, lighting, heating and cooling, and for many people increased number of luxuries, things that we take for granted such as electrical appliances, automobiles and air travel. And then on the positive side there could be much more energy, energy security for, for nations around the world as they become more independent in terms of their energy production. This is particularly because of the production of unconventional resources and that is likely to lead to much less volatile energy price fluctuations than we saw in the latter part of the 20th century. On the negative side however there's the atmospheric pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. So the research challenge is how to achieve the positives while mitigating the negatives. So what I would suggest is one of the grand challenges for the 21st century is how do we achieve a healthy planet in a prosperous and energy resource abundant world? Well, I hope that I have given you some ideas to think about when you consider the future of energy and in your own predictions about the future energy mix.
but predicting the future can be perilous. There have been dramatic changes in technology over the last 100 years and we cannot envisage all the technological advances that will take place this century. I will leave you with these few words of wisdom about predicting the future. I hope the talk has given you some new, new perspectives on our future energy mix and I look forward to working with you on the Grand Challenge. Thank you very much.